Yeah. Amen. Thanks, Claire. Good morning, Life Church. It's good to see you. Good to be with you this morning. Um, you may know I was away last weekend. We were um, celebrating my wife's birthday as a family um, in the mountains. Uh, this is a season of the year when I get to um, rib my wife just a little bit. She's a few months older than I am. And so um, I will say for the next couple of months that she is in her mid-40s while I'm still in my early 40s. Um, and I think that's funny. She doesn't really, but I think that's funny. And so that's why I thought I would clue you in um, on our inside joke. But uh, yeah, we, we enjoyed being away, but we really missed you. And it's my joy to be back with you this morning. Um, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 8, and so if you have a Bible um, or a way to get the Bible in front of you this morning, that's where we will be. As you can see, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together today. And so though uh, Joshua 8 is an Old Testament story, um, in the middle of a longer Old Testament story, I think we're going to see very clearly today how that sets us up and prepares us to reflect on and remember what God has done for us by sending his son to live and die in our place, our remembrance of that through Holy Communion. Um, May 2nd, 1995, um, I don't know if you remember what you were doing on May 2nd, 1995. Some of you weren't born yet, I realize, but I was. Um, that was two days after my 16th birthday, um, and that was not a great day for me. Um, in fact, it was a pretty terrible day for me, May 2nd, 1995, which is why the day is kind of burned in my memory. It was on that day, two days after I turned 16, that in one fell swoop, um, I damaged two of my father's prized possessions. Um, so two of my father's prized possessions when I was a teenager, one was a red Saab 900. If you've never seen a Saab, Saab makes airplanes generally, but they also made a few cars, and my dad had one for a while when I was a teenager. Um, his red Saab 900 was, man, it was probably, of all of the sweet cars that my dad has owned in his life, his favorite of those sweet cars. Um, his second most prized possession at that time was his also red BMW K75S motorcycle. And like I said, I managed to damage both of those things in one fell swoop. It was not a great day. Um, our garage like, was at an angle to our driveway, and so as you backed out of the garage, you had to begin to turn the wheel of the car um, so that you didn't like, run into the grass, right? And I had done that before. Um, it was not the first time I was trying to do that, but um, it was the first time I think I had done it in my dad's Saab, which was a manual. And so I was really focused on feathering the clutch so that I didn't stall the car as I backed it out of the garage and turned the wheel just a little bit too early. So I clipped the motorcycle with the car and I saw the motorcycle like wobble for a moment and like my heart like leapt out of my chest, right? Thankfully it didn't like topple over, but I knew, I knew I had hit it. And so I stopped the car, turned the car off, sat there for a few moments, thought about how I was going to go inside the house and tell my dad what I had done. And you know, I'll be honest, I was, I was terrified. My dad was and is still today a very reasonable man, right? Like I knew that he would, would find it in his heart to forgive me. I knew that he would be understanding and that he wouldn't rip my head off. But I really, I really feared 
that he would just come unglued and you know, rip me limb from limb, which, which maybe I deserved to be ripped limb from limb, right? I had damaged his two most prized possessions in one fell swoop. And so I, I still remember today, like the most vivid part of that whole thing for me was still just sitting in the car, thinking about how my dad was going to respond when I went to him and told him what I had done. There's a sense in which that's a bit like how Joshua and the Israelites feel as the story of Joshua chapter 8 unfolds. Pastor Matt did a great job last weekend walking us through the events of Joshua 7. Um, And Joshua 7 was a pretty bad day for the nation of Israel, if we think about it. Um, The nation of Israel had been, uh, they were in the process of entering into the promised land and conquering the promised land as God had commanded them to and as he had promised them they would. But they ran into a massive hurdle in the city of Ai because of some sin in their midst. In particular, it's the sin of just one man, Achan. But his sin, the Lord held the entire nation accountable for that sin. Um, They suffered a bloody defeat in battle. Um, Once Achan's sin was exposed, his sin was punished, and all of the people suffered the consequences of his sin. And I think there's a very real sense in which, coming out of the events of Joshua chapter 7, Joshua is the leader of Israel, and the people of Israel in general would have been feeling Well, much like I felt sitting in my driveway on May 2nd, 1995, right? They would be wondering, like, is God still with us? Will God still fight for us? Do God's promises to us endure, given what we've done? And even Joshua, thinking about how he's failed as a leader, thinking about what's happened on his watch as a leader of God's people, Joshua's still wondering, is God still with us? Do his promises remain. Which is why chapter 8 is really, though as we'll see, it's still a bloody picture. Um, It's also a picture of a God who is very tender and kind in the way he restores his people to himself. We'll also see that this is a picture of a God who provides powerfully for his people and a God who does not abandon or forsake his people even when they sin against him in serious ways. And so let me pray again for us, then we will unpack really three things that we see about God here in this passage as we prepare for the Lord's Supper today. Pray with me. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we sit under your word together today. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're reaching um, a point in this book where the passages just get longer and longer and longer. Um, And so this morning, I'm not gonna read all of Joshua chapter eight. In the weeks ahead, we probably won't read all of the text that's before us. I hope you will read Joshua chapter eight, but I'm gonna point out three key things that are very clear that emerge from Joshua chapter eight today. Um, Here's the first thing I want us to consider. I want us to consider the tender kindness of God as he restores Joshua and Israel. Now, what I want you to note in particular is the way that God moves toward Joshua. The way that he, he almost pursues Joshua and even, I'm gonna use this word, the way that he recommissions Joshua. Read just the first two verses with me. Joshua 8, one and two. And the Lord said to Joshua, 
do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Now, if you've been with us as we've been walking through the first seven chapters of Joshua, perhaps you hear in those two verses the echoes of the statements and promises already made to Joshua and to God's people. Like, in fact, the opening statements from the mouth of God to Joshua, they sound a lot like what God said to Joshua in chapter one when he was commissioned for the first time to lead his people. Right, when God says, do not fear and do not be dismayed, those are commands that God has already given Joshua. And so he's saying, Joshua, the job hasn't changed. Right, the task that's before you, it remains. Though the sin at AI, though Achan's sin, which happened under your watch, was serious. Right, your job, it hasn't changed. And then his promise hasn't changed either. He also says, see, I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. In other words, like I haven't changed. I haven't departed from the promise that I made to you and Moses before you and Abraham before him. Right? So God is recommissioning Joshua. He's leaning into or moving in the direction of Joshua. He's being very tender and kind to address both like the, the external circumstances, right? We've got this city that beat us in battle last time out. Josh, God says, don't worry, I'm gonna take care of that. But then he's also addressing Joshua's internal condition, right? Like I think by this point, we must conclude that Joshua was prone to fear. He was prone to doubt and discouragement, which is why God kept saying to him again and again and again, do not fear, do not be dismayed but it's very like, tender and, and kind of God to pursue Joshua and to, to lean into their relationship and, and even to recommission him in that way. Consider that tender kindness of our God. Do you believe after sin in your life that God would so tenderly and kindly pursue you do you believe that he would pursue you and, and move in your direction and be restored to you in the way that he restores himself to Joshua here? The truth is that we have a tendency when we sin to make one of two equal but opposite errors. Right? There are two mistakes that we make in our thinking about God and about ourselves when we sin. They're, they're equal but they're, they're opposite. Like one of those errors is to believe that our sin is all that matters. The other of those errors is to believe that our sin doesn't matter at all. And so sometimes when we sin, we'll believe that our sin, it's all that matters. Other times when we sin, we'll, we'll believe that our sin doesn't matter at all. But those are both false. Those are both errors that we need to push against. What do I mean when I say we are tempted sometimes to believe that our sin is all that matters? Well, this is when we picture God as, as a God who is, who is always frustrated with us and disappointed with us. Like we sometimes are tempted to believe that, that God is willing to be in relationship with us, but it's, but it's only through gritted teeth, 
right? Like when he pictures us in his mind or in his heart, he's like, oh gosh, here that guy comes again. And, and like he's just frustrated by the fact that he is bound to us by the blood of his son. We think of God as this sort of like angry, disappointed father. Maybe the way that my father could have been with me on May 2nd, 1995. Right, when we sin, we think, man, I've blown it so many times. Like, God, this is probably the time that he's gonna be done with me. But the thing is, like, when we think that our sin is all that matters, that ultimately reveals that we have failed to actually understand the gospel in the first place, Right, when we think that God is just like frustrated and disappointed by us, what that reveals is that in our hearts, like we've been looking to something in ourselves for our standing before God all along. We haven't really learned to stand on the grace of the gospel. We've been standing on something in ourselves. Like brothers, sisters, the gospel is not the news that God saved you when you got your spiritual act together. The gospel is not the news that God welcomed you into his family when you started to like look a little bit respectable, spiritually speaking. The gospel is not the news that God embraced you when you finally moved in his direction. No, the gospel is the good news that God pursued you while you were sprinting headlong away from him. The gospel is the good news that God graciously moved in your direction to forgive you when you were steadfastly opposed to him in your sin. The gospel is not the news that like you were drowning in the ocean and God threw you a life preserver and you grabbed onto that life preserver. The gospel is the good news that you were dead, stone cold dead at the bottom of the ocean and God resuscitated you like he brought you to new life in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, like Paul says in Ephesians 2, when you're, when you're dead, right, you don't cry out. When you're dead, you don't ask for help. When you're dead, you don't whimper and wish that things were different. Your sin, it has not put you in the doghouse with God, right? You can whimper from the doghouse. Your sin has not like put you in timeout. In timeout, you can whimper wish that something was different. No, your sin has put you in the morgue and you are dead in that sin until God makes you alive. And that is an act entirely of his grace. There's nothing in me that persuades God to save me in the first place. And there is nothing in me that persuades God to keep me after that. Which means that when we think, man, our sin is all that matters, Right, because of this sin or that sin, like there's no way God is going to take me back. There's no way that God is going to accept me. Or God's always going to be frustrated and disappointed with me. That means that we've never really understood grace in the first place. We've never really understood the staggering depths that God went to bring us into his family. We've never really understood the fact that The grace of Jesus is so big that sin never, ever gets the last word. Or the tender mercy of Christ, it has the last word, always. Which debunks the whole, my sin is all that matters, lie. And we could easily have seen Joshua and the Israelites living in that lie, right? They could have thought about their defeat at AI. They could have thought about Achan's sin and the way that they were all corporately responsible for that sin. And they could have believed God's never gonna take us back. But we see God here graciously 
tenderly, kindly, moving in Joshua's direction, restoring himself to Joshua and to the people. But that's just one of the lies, right? Our sin is all that matters. The other lie is that our sin doesn't matter at all. And when we believe this, that creates a kind of license to sin. It cheapens the holiness of God, and it actually cheapens the cross, right? It also is a failure to understand the gospel because it's a failure to rightly wrestle with the staggering price that God paid in order to put away our sin, in order to pay the penalty for our sin. What we need to understand is that God does seriously oppose all sin and all who unrepentantly remain in their sin, including our sin. Right, we can think about Joshua and the Israelites here. Achan sinned, but after Achan sinned, the Israelites took drastic steps to repent of that sin. Once they identified that it was Achan's sin that was the source of the consequences that had come into the nation, right, they put Achan to death at God's direction. They put Achan's family to death. They burned everything that Achan stole. They buried Achan and his family in a massive heap of stones, right? They, they very visibly and at great cost moved away from their sin. They turned from that sin. They, they repented from that sin. And it's only because they've demonstrated that repentance, right, that God pursues them in restoration. I fear that when we buy into this lie that our sin doesn't matter at all, that we're really expecting or hoping for the restoration without the repentance. Right, we expect God to be faithful to us even when we walk in willful unfaithfulness to him. We expect God to treat us like our sin is not a big deal, even when our sin remains a big deal in our hearts and in our lives. And so I just wonder if you would pause for a minute this morning to consider whether or not that might be true of you. Are there ways in which you're expecting restoration with God but not walking in repentance toward God? Are there ways in which you're expecting God to have dealt with your sin when you're unwilling to deal with your sin? Church, God was so serious about our sin problem that he sent his son to die in order to solve that sin problem. We can't expect to be the fullness of joy and the, the flourishing that God desires for us unless we're serious about our sin problem too. Right? We can't expect God to move in our prayer life, to, to answer our prayers and to lead us into like sweet seasons of communion with him in prayer. Like if our hearts are dominated by lust and greed and covetousness and like porn and, and things like that. It doesn't matter like what truths we sing about God in corporate worship when we gather. If as soon as we leave this place and are scattered from this place, we, we lie or we, we speak slanderous things about our neighbors, right? Like it doesn't matter what comes from our mouth here if what comes from our mouth out there is filthy. It doesn't matter, right, what we feel in our hearts here if our hearts are devoted to things that are false out there. 
Yes, God restores himself to sinners. He restores himself to repentant sinners. And so as you sit with us today, and especially as you prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, like what signs of true, genuine repentance exist in your life? What are the signs that you have taken your sin seriously, as seriously as God has? Recognizing that your sin is not all that matters because Jesus has paid it all for you. But recognizing also that that cannot mean that your sin doesn't matter at all because of how deeply our God is opposed to sin even in us. May we not be people who expect the restoration without repentance. Here's the second thing we should consider as we just think about what happens in Joshua 8. We should consider the mighty power of God as he overcomes the city of Ai and the people of Ai. Now, again, I'm not going to read all of chapter 8, but I want to point out something to you so that when you read it later, like you can see how everything in this chapter fits together. The narrator of this story very carefully shows us that God speaks to Joshua at two key moments in the story. We've already read one of them in verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read the other one to you here in a minute. But the way that that the story is structured, it, it emphasizes the fact that everything that happens here happens according to God's plan and God's direction and even God's power, right? What the narrator is emphasizing is the mighty power of God as the people of Israel and Joshua overcome the citizens in the city of Ai. And so we already read one of the times when God speaks to Joshua. That's in verses one and two. What does God tell Joshua to do? Well, he tells him to lay a trap, to like set an ambush for the army of Ai. And so in verses three and then following, Joshua does exactly what God told him to do. He sends a large army and tells him to hide behind the city of Ai. And then he himself commands an even larger force that goes and stands essentially in front of the city of Ai. He has everyone move at night so that the citizens of Ai can't like see what's going on. And then these two armies wait. When the dawn breaks, Joshua with the larger army, they, they feign like they pretend like they're attacking the city. But then when the citizens of Ai start to fight back, right, they turn and run with the aim being to kind of draw the, the fighting men of Ai out of the city and away from the city. All of that's God's plan, and Joshua does exactly what God tells him to do. But I want you to notice that, that even like the execution of that plan rests on and relies on God's power. And the narrator makes that clear when, when God speaks a second time. So flip over the page if you're in a real Bible to verse 18. So this is Joshua 8, 18, and this is what the text says. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, he's speaking a second time. He says, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. And so that's how... Um, the Israelites are going to capture this city. And then here in a minute, we won't read it. You can read it later. But right, the, uh, the, the, the soldiers from Ai that have left the city that are chasing the Israelites, 
the Israelites are going to turn around on them and then they're going to be like surrounded and eventually destroyed. That's how God overcomes this city. But I just want you to wrestle with this bit about the javelin for a minute, right? Like that apparently is the sign when it's time for the soldiers who are like hiding behind the city, that's the sign that they're supposed to come out and, and take the city. But even that rests on the supernatural direction and power of God. Right? These people don't have walkie-talkies. There's no satellite imagery, right? They can't, uh, they don't have drones flying around the battle to like tell the commanders when it's time to move and when it's time to wait. And so there needed to be some supernatural communication between Joshua and the people. And apparently God, like he, he invests that in this, this javelin. By the way, I think that's supposed to remind us of the story in Exodus chapter 18, when Moses is leading the people of Israel in battle against the pagan armies that were surrounding him. And that's the story where, where Moses, he stretches out his staff. And as long as his arms were, were stretched out, then Israel would succeed in battle. But the second that Moses let down his arms, Israel would start to fail in battle. And so Moses had to have two men like hold his arms on each side so that he could keep his arms outstretched so that the Lord would give Israel victory in battle. It's a similar image here, a similar picture here. Because the narrator is just emphasizing like these are the subtle ways the text is telling us that God is the one who is providing victory in this battle and that Israel depends on God entirely. And so in chapter 7, Matt read this to you last week, Israel failed in battle. They lost a battle against the army of Ai. But in chapter 8, because God is working in this way, the Israelites win that victory. All of that expresses the way that the Israelites are totally dependent on God. Here's how one commentator wrote about that. He said, with the power of God, the great Jericho could be taken. Without his power, not even the smallest post could be overrun. How utterly dependent God's people are upon God's power for any success how utterly dependent God's people are upon God's power for any success. We're utterly dependent. Do you believe today that that is just as true for you as it was for Joshua and the army of Israel? Do you believe today that you and I are just as dependent on the power of God as Joshua and the nation of Israel were dependent on the power of God. We're no more capable in ourselves, church, than the Israelites were. We cannot produce in ourselves. I realize we're not fighting military battles, but we cannot battle sin. We cannot battle our spiritual enemy in our own strength. There will be no lasting change in our lives, no true growth in our lives, unless we are utterly dependent on God's power. We will make no ministry advances. We will accomplish no great things for God's kingdom unless we are utterly dependent on God's power. How utterly dependent God's people are upon God's power for any success. Do you believe that that's true today? Do you believe that you need God for everything that you will do that is good.
for anything you will do that is good. And if you believe that, do you pray like that is true? Right, does the way you pray, the intensity of your prayers, and the things that you're praying about, right, does that reflect the fact that you believe you are utterly dependent on God's power for any success? Often, people think that you know, prayer is hard, and I, and I get that. We, we think we struggle with prayer because we believed that we aren't disciplined enough to pray well. But the truth is, we struggle in prayer not because we aren't disciplined enough. We struggle in prayer because we aren't desperate enough. Where we don't believe deep in our hearts that we need God's power. We don't believe deep in our hearts that we are utterly dependent on him for any success. And so that leads us into this sinful pattern of pride and self-reliance. But Joshua's story should illustrate to us dependent prayer, desperate prayer, recognizing that we will do nothing good apart from God's power. Do you pray like you're desperate? Really, I, I would ask you to think about your prayers. Even just think about your prayers from the last week. Like if God had answered every prayer that you prayed in the last week, what would be different? I mean, who would have come to know the Lord based on your prayers last week? Whose marriage would have been healed and reconciled? Right? What global geopolitical conflict would have been solved because of your prayers? What unreached people group would now be reached because of your prayers? What sin struggle would you have finally put to death because of your prayers? And ask those questions because our prayer lives are really a window into our pride and into our self-reliance, showing us just how convinced we are that we've got what it takes to do what needs to be done. I hope you know, I hope I know, how utterly dependent God's people are upon God's power for any success. And I pray that we would pray like that's true. The third thing I want us to consider is the extreme judgment of God as he punishes those who oppose him. And here's again where I'm grateful for the opportunity to, from this Old Testament story, begin to prepare our minds and our hearts for communion. I want you just to pay attention to what happens after Israel wins this victory over Ai. Uh, Pick up in verse 28 with me. So, the army of Ai followed the decoy. Those Israelite soldiers turned and opposed them. The Israelite soldiers that were behind the city came out of the city. They circled the army of Ai and they, they routed them, right? They completely beat up on them. Then they captured the king. Read verse 28. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. There's a part of me that wishes verses like that weren't in the Bible. 
right? This is not like a super comfortable picture. Like I really don't imagine like a children's Bible, like with some, you know, cute cartoony scene, like picturing the king of AI dead and like strung up on this tree, right? This doesn't give you warm fuzzies. At God's direction, the people of Israel, they kill the king of AI, they put him on like display, right? They make a public spectacle of his body and then they take him down, they bury him under a massive heap of stones. And on top of that, right, the entire city is destroyed, right? So Joshua burned AI and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day, right? All of its inhabitants are killed. And, you know, we're going to see this again and again in the book of Joshua. I mean, this just feels extreme, right? Did God really need to do that? Did God really need to command his people to do that? If so, what do we make of a God? like this, who executes such extreme judgment against those who oppose him? What do we make of a God like that? Well, people today, we really don't mind a God of extreme love. But when we think about a God of extreme judgment, we're, we're pretty uncomfortable with that. Right? A God who loves us extremely, who's there for us no matter what, who will take care of us no matter what happens, We love that kind of God. But a God of extreme judgment like this is a God that unsettles us. But the thing that we're going to see again and again in the book of Joshua, the thing that I hope you hear from me again and again, is that there really can be no God of extreme love without a God of extreme judgment. God's love and his judgment, they are inextricably linked to one another. They are two sides of the same coin. If you take away God's judgment, you have actually taken away God's love. If you take away God's love, then his judgment makes no sense, right? We only understand God and we only understand God's attributes when we understand how they fit together. And so there can be no God of love without a God of judgment. Let me just illustrate that. Right now, probably, as we sit here and as I talk at you, there are bombs and missiles falling in Ukraine. Almost certainly, um, civilian people are being harmed by those bombs and missiles. Now, I hope that breaks your heart. And I realize that it feels a world away and we're desensitized by a ton of bad news these days, but I hope that you think about what's happening in Ukraine And I hope that that breaks your heart. I hope that your heart is broken, especially for those who know and love people in Ukraine. And I pray that your heart is broken even for people in Russia because, you know, one thing that's clear is that nobody's going to win this, right? Like, I understand that there is clearly an aggressor, um, but the truth is that this is lose-lose for everyone. And the end of this is not going to be good for anyone. But what does it mean for God to love the people of Ukraine today? What does it mean for God to love them as bombs and missiles fall on apartment buildings and parks and schools and things like that? How can God love the Ukrainian people today extremely? What's more? Like what if God never did anything to punish those people who sent those bombs? 
What if God never did anything to punish the people who fired those missiles? If God never brought his extreme judgment against the perpetrators of those wrongs, against those responsible for those evils, could we really say that that God was a God of extreme love? No, we couldn't, right? Like God can only be a God of extreme love if he defends those he loves. Which in God's case, given the fact that he is all-powerful, means he must punish those who harm those he loves. And so God's love, it actually depends on his judgment. God's love can only be extreme if God's judgment is extreme. Extreme judgment, it is a consequence of God's extreme love. But then the opposite of that is also true, right? Extreme love is also a consequence of extreme judgment. In other words, how do we know that God actually loves us? How do we know, what's more, that God's love is, is great, that it's deep as we've sung to one another? How do we know that God's love for us is real and not just like some wishful thinking? Well, we look at the cross, We look at the place where God's extreme judgment against all sin was poured out, not on us who deserve it, but on his one and only son who did not deserve it. We can know definitively that God's love for us is extreme because of the extreme judgment that God poured out on Jesus when Jesus hung on that cross and he drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath that you deserved and that I deserve. Right, see, not only can you not have love without judgment? You can't have judgment without love. Right? Those two things are necessarily linked to one another. God's extreme love, his extreme judgment, they go hand in hand. And so what we need today, as we sit in this room, as we approach the Lord's Supper today, and as we then leave this place to live our lives We need a clear-eyed, full-hearted picture of all that God is. A God who is extreme in his love, yes, and extreme in his judgment, yes. Right, this passage, it urges us to consider the judgment that we deserve, and it urges us to consider the God who bore that judgment for us. And so as we sit at the Lord's table today, May we do that remembering that we deserve the fate of the citizens of AI. That we deserve to be hung from a tree and made a public spectacle of like the king of AI. But God sent his one and only son, the true king of heaven, to be hung from a tree in our place so that we would not have to be. Or as we take the Lord's Supper today, May we remember that we, we're not drowning in the ocean, but dead at the bottom of the ocean. As we take the Lord's Supper today, may we remember that we were not in the doghouse with God, we were in the morgue. Yet Jesus pursued us, just as God pursues Joshua. Jesus saved us. And because he saved us, our sin is not all that matters about us. Right? The fact that we have not measured up is not all that matters about us. The fact that we have blown it time and time again is not all that matters about us. The fact that we are far from perfect is not all that matters about us. The fact that we are deficient and insufficient and simply haven't done enough, it's not all that matters about us. Because God paid the penalty of our sin on the cross. And so our sin is not all that matters. 
But our sin does matter. It matters so much that God sent Jesus for us. May we consider his faithfulness and his grace, his extreme judgment and his extreme love. And may we sing of these things now as we prepare to gather around his table and to remember and embody his love for us. Pray with me, church. God, we pray that you would prepare us now to not only pray your word and hear your word and sing your word today, but to see your word as it shapes us, your people, around this table. We pray that in this time we would realize because of the cross that our sin is not all that matters about us. We pray also that we would realize as we gather around this table that our sin does matter. And may that sobering truth move us to pursue repentance so that we can be restored to you. And may you give us just such a big view of yourself today. May we see how your extreme love for us only makes sense when we consider your extreme judgment. And we may, may we see how your extreme judgment is necessary because of your extreme love. And holding those two things together, may our vision of your glory transform us from one degree of glory to another. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.